0: We're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to do a very, very long review followed by a very short sermon. (laughs) And um, hopefully it'll be clear to you why I've chosen to do that. Because as I've been uh, surveying, you know, the congregation and other people who are following this series, I have really found a pretty broad spectrum of responses to this series through the revelation some are razor focused just I look at you and you are just wrapped with attention and some of you have conveyed to me that you've been more encouraged in this series through revelation than you've ever been in a series through revelation and I find that reassuring it's kind of a goal you know that that I have others though are um, confused. They're like, I'm not really sure where everything goes. You know, it's like a Rubik's Cube and you just keep twisting and twisting and you're just wait, trying to get one side to be the same color, you know, or something like that. I find that challenging. That's a, you know, as I sit down, I, like, that's the challenge. Others, I've seen sleeping. Deeper than I've ever seen a member of this church. <laughs> Mouth opened, drool coming down. And as a pastor, I find that humbling. <laughs> to to be sure, Revelation can be a very difficult book. And I don't want to sound harsh, but I think one of the reasons that it is difficult, at least in part, is due to the popular theological carnival surrounding its message. I mean, the books and the movies and all of these things and the way it's presented in our popular culture, I have found very confusing. And uh, whereas I'm trying to make things simple, I feel like I'm contending with a very confusing eschatological atmosphere. We, we, We tend to just, I would argue, without any exegetical or interpretive warrant, just drop thousands of years between verses, that if you're just reading it, you're not going to find thousands of years in those verses. As I also mentioned, we often read it with the newspaper in mind, rather than the Old Testament in mind, which also makes it confusing. And because of the symbolic language throughout the book, we tend to impose what I have found to be strained conjecture regarding who's who and what's what. The chapter we're about to embark upon, I think, is a prime example of that. The 144,000, who are they? Are they Mormon elders? Are they Jehovah's Witnesses? Are they 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams in a post-rapture seven-year tribulation? I mean, the guesses go on and on and on in terms of who these 144,000 are. Now, in these messages, I find myself pursuing three things. One is to make it simple. I mean, I think the Bible calls us to make things easy to understand. That is a, a goal I have in an otherwise difficult book to understand. Secondly, and these aren't necessarily in order because secondly is probably the most important thing, that the messages be biblical, that we're actually preaching the full counsel of God. And third, I think naturally follows if those first two are happening, and that is that it be ministerial, that you understand it, that it's biblical, and it ministers to your heart. Years ago, I did a series called... Remedial Christianity. And um, in that series, I sought to convey all the things that, that I felt like I had to unlearn and relearn. That's what remedial means, by the way. Remedial isn't beginning. You know, if you have remedial English, it's not beginning English. Basically, remedial means you've learned it the wrong way. You've got to unlearn it and relearn it, which makes it kind of more difficult. And I think we're all, we all do that, kind of all our lives, but in this particular series, I felt like I had to do a lot of U-turns, and so in that series, I was like, here's what I believed. I had to unlearn that and uh, relearn it, and then I was trying to help others who were in that same course. But I have to say, there's probably not a book in the Bible, not a topic <clears throat> that warrants more of a remedial approach than the revelation and eschatology. There's so much we have to unlearn. It makes me think about the military flight instructor. You know, he's got all of these young pilots, many of whom have flight experience because, you know, they were crop dusting in their farm or whatever. And the military instructor goes, you need to forget everything you've learned. I kind of feel we almost have to do that. We need to, we need to kind of extract from our minds everything we've been bombarded with in terms of what we've learned about the Revelation and get a running start at chapter 7. With the Bible in mind, I want us to go into chapter 7 with the first six chapters in mind not some eschatology book that we've read or some movie that we've watched. But let's go into chapter 7 with the best of our ability, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, understanding the first six chapters. So here we're going to do a, a quick review of the first six chapters. Two times. Two times in the first three verses of the Revelation we are told that things are about to happen. All right? Let's read this. Revelation 1, 1 and 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Then verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time Is near. Now keep in mind, when you have an introduction to a book, that carries a lot of weight in terms of the rest of the book. If we can just allow the scriptures to keep us where they want to keep us, then a lot of the confusion, I think, is alleviated. Then again, in chapter 20, or chapter 1, we have this very glorious greeting. And we, I say we, but really those seven churches and then by extension all churches are given in chapter one a vision of the glorified Christ. And this glorified Christ is in the midst of the seven churches. This presence of Christ in the church, which I believe is here this moment. But they're being told of Christ's presence, the glorified Christ in their presence. I think all churches should ever be cognizant, especially in light of temptation, in light of trial, in light of difficulty, we should ever be cognizant of who is in our midst. This is not a class. We're not just here as students. We are here as a family at the dinner table, and our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is present with us. He inhabits our praises. He, he tabernacles among us. And we need to approach whatever trials, and they're going to go through some difficulties, with that in mind. So before John gets into all the other stuff, he's kind of going, I, you need to know who is with you. And you have this amazing description of the glorified Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes like the sun and so forth. After that, that's the things that John had seen. Then he's told to to convey the things which are. So now we go into chapters 2 and 3 because the Revelation gives us its own outline, right? The things that you've seen the things which are and the things that will take place after this. We see that in chapter 1, verse 19. So in chapters 2 and 3, we see the second part of the outline, which is our letters to seven churches. The theme of all those letters, and we went through that in detail, so we're not going to do that obviously now, but basically, generally speaking, the theme of those seven letters is to repent, to persevere and to overcome in light of difficult days ahead. Jesus is seeking to keep his church pure. Don't head for the highway. Stay faithful. Stay the course. And each one of those letters, we see a description of the glorified Christ, right? And so every time there's a letter to one of the churches, they're reminded of chapter one. We are always to be reminded of chapter one. So, so before Jesus starts giving them instructions, it's almost like, remember chapter one, remember chapter one, remember who I am, remember I am with you, and so forth. There is also in these two chapters reminders of the nearness of the events that we're going to see foretold in Revelation. It is future to them, to be sure, right? And they are told over and over again to expect something, something is imminent for them. In chapter 2, verse 10, writing to Smyrna, they are told not to fear any of those things, which you are about to suffer. You see the nearness there. You as a church, Smyrna, are about to suffer some things. Don't fear. Recognizing that this, what I'm about to read, is not a reference to the second coming, and there is going to be a second coming, a literal, physical second coming of Christ, but that's not what this verse is saying. Revelation 2.25, writing to the church at Thyatira, he writes that they should hold fast, what you have, till I come. That church is being told that. So whatever that coming is, it's a different thing than the second coming. Similarly, in his letter to Sardis, he writes, therefore, if you will not watch, you know, he's, no, he's writing to a first century church, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour that I will come upon you. That church received this letter. So the original readers had to understand that in some sense Christ would come upon them as a thief. Speaking of the soon coming hour of trial, which I would take to be a reference to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of of, the, of Jerusalem, the, the siege and fall of Jerusalem. Jesus warns the church at Philadelphia Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. You see there again, right? He is coming quickly. Some people will say, Well, that means when he's coming, he's going to be, he'll be really fast. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think that's the natural reading of the text. Because we already read that the time is what? Near. Near, right? So he's just repeating the fact of what we've already seen. And then we see the final promise in all these seven letters to the church at Laodicea. To him overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That ends part two. Seven letters to the seven churches. And then we move into the things which will take place after this. Now... We are currently in, you know, Roman numeral three of the outline. And that begins with chapter four. Now, and I'm going to say this over and over again because it just is so hard for us to get. With no indication of any lengthy interval of time, like we'll see in chapter 20. We're going to see in chapter 20 a thousand year period. That's a long time. But here with no indication whatsoever of any lengthy period of time, we see John, and only John, swept up into the throne room of God. We see that in chapter chapter 4. It's as if they've just been promised by Christ to sit on the throne, right? That's the promise at the very end. And then they get to see firsthand That throne room, this is what you're promised, to sit with Christ on his throne, and then John, by vision, conveys to those seven churches, and to us, by extension, that very throne room that he had just referenced in terms of that promise. Now, remember I said in chapter 1, we see the vision of Christ in the midst of the churches, right? He is here in a spiritual sense, he is here with us. But in chapter four, we're given a vision of the glory of God and the heavenly host. In chapter one, it's the God who is here. It is the Christ who is here. In chapter four, it is the God who is there. We think God made me think just now of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, which art in heaven. You have the imminence, our Father, intimate relationship which are in heaven, transcendence, the God who is there. And we see this kind of going back and forth actually through the revelation. He's, we, so John is given a vision of this celestial worship with the seraphim, cherubim, the spirits of God, the 24 elders. We see all of this happening in that throne room. He is being worshipped in chapter 4 as creator, for you created all things. But as we had mentioned when we went through that, the mere acknowledgement of a creator is not necessarily good news. Right? I mean, I I put down here the reference Isaiah 6.5. When Isaiah had the very similar experience and he saw the glorious heavenly host worshiping the one who sat on the throne, he didn't immediately join in in the worship, right? Well, what did he say? Right, exactly. Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. It wasn't immediately good news for Isaiah, and it's not immediately good news that there simply is a creator. But the worship moves in chapter 5 from creation to redemption. Now in chapter 5, we read in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We also see in chapter 5 the introduction to this scroll that we just read about. This scroll that has seven seals on it. Well, what is that? I would argue that that is... Judicial and redemptive history, especially that which is about to take place. That scroll contains things that God is about to do. And as each seal is removed, we get a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be reading throughout the rest of Revelation. Now, I must repeat that in the text, you see no great interval of time we're reviewing, I I reviewed it, I reread it, you can reread it yourself, you're not going to see it, you're not going to see, and then thousands of years later, this or that will happen. Or anything that even sounds like that, If if you're drawing that conclusion, you're bringing that to the text, that's called isogesis, as opposed to exegesis. Exegesis is drawing it from the text, isogesis is imposing it upon the text. Anywhere now, at least here, that if you're going to go, well, no, thousands of years take place, you are imposing that upon the text. It's not found in the text. The original readers, which I think is very important when we read our Bibles. How would the original readers have understood what's being said? The original readers, I think, are bracing themselves by the grace of God and by the message of God for the soon to be cataclysmic activity that is being presented in the breaking of these seals. They are being told, something is about to happen, and you need to stay the course. You need to fight the good fight. You need to be faithful to the end. You need to keep the faith, something we see throughout all of Scripture. And as these seals are broken, we see wild things, right? The four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Coming to conquer. And we see death. And we see economic difficulty. And we see famine and pestilence. So so they're being foretold that very difficult things are going to happen here. And then on the fifth seal, we see something that should help us understand the very short sermon that I'm about to give. And that is slain saints, martyrs under the altar praying that God will exact his judgment upon those who are killing the brethren. How long, O Lord, before you do something about the great persecution of the bride of Christ? Now, as I've said, there's, there's no indication of a great long time period here. They're asking for God to bring justice. And then when we see the answer, which we'll see here in verse 11, we see reference to a time frame. They are told, these martyred saints, this is kind of the answer to their prayer, they are told that they should rest a little while longer in po- until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was, com- was completed. That's the answer they're given. Now, again, you may want to reread Revelation up to this point. But you're going to notice that there is, again, no lengthy period of time leading up to this prayer. And these martyrs are told that the persecution of their brethren will continue a little while longer. Why is that important? Why am I emphasizing that? Because some people will argue that this is a reference to the ongoing persecution of the church throughout the entire New Covenant age. That's more of a, for those of you who are really studying this, that's more of an amillennial idealist position, where you're going, well, this is not about those events in the first century. And I, I agree with them in a lot of things, right? This is about the ongoing persecution of the church throughout the course of the New Covenant. And yet a verse like this, kind of militates against that kind of interpretation because being, they're being told that they're to wait for how long? A little while longer. I don't know, I don't know how you interpret that to be thousands of years. In, in what world is a little while thousands of years? And then you could say, well, to, to God a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Except this isn't written to God. It's written to us. It's not giving his perspective. It's giving the readers a perspective that they are to operate on, that it's only going to last a short period of time. Now, in the breaking of the sixth seal, which we talked about last time, we see language that many people associate with the end of the world, right? The sun turning black and the moon turning to blood and stars falling and and so forth. But as we discussed in detail last time, if we look at the Old Testament... If we read that language in light of the way it was used in the Old Testament, we conclude that this language is used by God to describe His judgment of nations generally by other nations. You know, we're, we're very comfortable with the idea that God makes and deposes kings and kingdoms, right? I mean, we all recognize He makes kings and He removes kings. What we have to understand is, well, how does He do that? How does God make kings, establish kings, and then remove them historically? Almost always through another nation. And not necessarily a good nation. It's God just kind of going, you're done. You, you, you are, your evil period has come to an end. So I'm going to raise up those guys to stop you. And as we read in Habakkuk, right, because Habakkuk did the same, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow Israel to behave this way? And God says, Not long, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and they're going to judge you. And then Habakkuk goes, well, wait a minute, they're worse than us. And God goes, I know, and then I'm going to judge them for what they do to you. And then all of a sudden we, at that point, you just have to put your, like he did, put your hand over your mouth and and recognize the, the godhood of God. I mean, people don't like doing that, but that's where Habakkuk goes, and that's where we should go as well. So we see that, though, in that language that most people put at the end of the world is language used in the Old Testament to describe the end of a nation, not the end of the world. This is the description of the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Remember we talked about B.C., A.D., this time when Jesus came and it was dark, it was evil, and all of the judgment from Abel to Zechariah is going to fall upon That generation. We see the author of Hebrews puts it this way. and that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the vanishing away of the old covenant was going to be cataclysmic. Now, as I said in a previous sermon, the kingdom of God is established. The new covenant kingdom of God is established, but it is established in a bad neighborhood, which in one sense at the time of Christ was the whole world, right? John writes in 1 John, the entire world lay under the sway of the wicked one. But especially, especially in terms of what was happening to the early church, Jerusalem and Rome, We see those are the detractors to the early church. It is is the high priests, and it is Pilate. all right. It's the Romans, and it's the Jews. It's the clergy and the politicians of the first century that are putting their fist upon the church. So the church is established, but they're established in a bad neighborhood. And what we're reading of in Revelation is God cleaning up the neighborhood that his church might continue which, by the way, has happened. There is no Roman Empire, and the ability for, the, you know, that religion at the time to continue to put their thumb upon the church has come to an end. Throughout the course of history, there are other detractors, and I would argue that we can be encouraged to know that in the same way God dealt with it then, he will deal with it throughout the course of history. But here, in terms of understanding the revelation, we have to understand there are two major detractors to the church. And we'll see there when we get there. I mean, they're they're spelled out, right? John will write, you know, of the one detractor, which is the city where our Savior was crucified. Well, where is that? It's Jerusalem, right? And then later, we're going to see the detractors, the oppressors, are the city of seven hills. Where's the city of seven hills? Anybody know? It's Rome, yes. And so we see that very clearly, I think, in, in the text. Well... Now, we get, now we're, about, we're about to the sermon. But I think we need to approach chapter 7 with all of that knowledge and this question. Some very severe things are about to happen. We all know it, right? If we read Revelation, it's explosive. It's judgment. The question, here's the big question. Will, will Christ protect his bride in the midst of this big explosion that's about to take place. What about those those martyrs, right? Think about them. They're under there going, Lord, how long before you vindicate us? How long before justice is served? Not long. It's about to happen. Rest a little while. Justice is going to come. And you might start thinking, well, if the bombs come, are... The bride, is the bride of Christ going to find themselves victims of friendly fire, right? When the temple is destroyed, will, will there be those stones collaterally landing on the bride of Christ? Will, will God, what is God going to do with his people when the Roman armies come in and exact judgment in a community, by the way, where there was no clear, super clear distinction between the Jews and the Christians, at least from the position of the Romans. As far as the Romans were concerned, the the Christians were just a, a, a Jewish sect. It wasn't as if they're like, well, there's a church, so let's not touch that church. That's not the way it was working. So you're kind of going, well, what is going to happen when all of this horrible stuff takes place? What's going to happen to the kingdom of God? Will they be preserved? All right, you understand the question? Because it is a gigantic question that needs to be answered. And now we will start the sermon. There's only a couple of pages. I only did three verses because I want to be merciful. <laughs> toward you. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of God. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we uh, examine these three verses, we do pray that we would understand what these things meant when they were written, what it meant to your kingdom, what it means to us in terms of the recognition that you have preserved your bride, that you take care of us, you've watched us for two millennia, and you've promised to do so throughout the course of history, that it is the kingdom of God that will be left standing. So we do pray, Father, that you would help us to understand these glorious things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, right, we're in these seals, right? So you got seven seals. Now, whether or not this is kind of an interlude or a parenthesis or a continuation of the sixth seal, some people would say this is kind of the sixth seal being further explained, I don't think is terribly important. What we need to recognize is that there has been a cry by the slain for justice. And that justice, as I've said, is coming soon. Now, just so we get the image here, it's as if these four angels are holding back the floodgates of judgment, right? It's almost like they've each got their finger in the dam, right? They're just kind of holding it back, and that's the feeling you get, you know, like, the wind, which in the Bible describes judgment, is about to fall upon, you know, the trees and the earth and all these things. So the idea that there's going to be like decimation and they're holding back the wind. So you get this feeling, right? Like, whoa, you know, don't take your finger out of the dam. Hold, you know, that's the, the picture that's being given here. Again, I would argue, and I'm going to try to make this point even more clear, that the means by which those floods will come or those winds will come will be by by God utilizing the Roman armies. Now, you're going, well, where are you getting that from? Well, I'm getting that from Jesus when he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Well, what armies would there be? There was really only one army at the time, and it was the Roman army. All right, so I I think, I don't think it's a stretch for us to kind of recognize that what they're holding back right now is Rome from doing what they would eventually do within a few years in terms of the tearing down of the temple and the siege of Jerusalem. I think it's... I think well, it's been suggested, and I think with merit, that chapter seven kind of answers the last question in chapter six, right? In chapter six, we're seeing right the 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 the, the sun turning black, the moon turning in the bud, stars falling, and on and on and on. And remember the last question: who who can stand? Like who's going to make it through this? And I think it's been speculated, and I think it's not a stretch to go. Chapter 7 answers the question, who can stand? I think it appears to follow the sense of the passage that these angels are holding back judgment along the lines of the time frame given in response to the prayers of the martyred saints. Again, it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. So they're holding back the judgment for a little while longer. Now, two things are going to happen during this period while well, they're to be at rest. They're going to rest while we do this. One, the martyring of their brethren would continue. Which maybe, I don't know, I mean, that may not be the most comforting thing, but God is providentially kind of going. You need to rest because your brethren, your fellow believers, are going to, for a time, similar to you, find themselves martyred. And, and God's kind of going, I'm going to allow this to happen for, for a time. The second thing, though, is really the big thing, right? I mean, the martyring's already happening, but there's something big that's about to take place. And that is that God would vindicate his own as suggested by my earlier metaphor, the bad neighborhood would soon be dealt with, that the kingdom of God might grow and advance. B.C. was going to become A.D. No small thing. More to the point for us as Christians, Old Covenant was going to become New Covenant. Remember I talked about the the firework that goes up and it's a dark sky and it's only Israel. In the Old Covenant, you've got one stream of light, that's Israel, and then it explodes and covers the whole world. That's the New Covenant, every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. But as I said, it is an explosion. An explosion was about to happen. When those angels kind of let go... That is an explosion. It it is cataclysmic. This is described by that apocalyptic language, as we said earlier. The sun turning black, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, that we see in chapter 6. But we also see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in Matthew 24, it's in Mark 13, and it's Luke 21, the same language. These are talking about the same things. If you read The Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. And you read about the destruction of the temple. It's the same language that we see here in chapter 6 leading into chapter 7. But all of this is held at bay until something else takes place. Another angel. So we have a fifth angel ascending from the east. I'm not a morning person occasionally cuz my son plays on a volleyball team and they have their first game at 8 which means we have to be there at 7 which means we have to be in the car at 6:15 which means I have to get up at 5:30 just so you understand what's going on with me <laughs> and i you know i'm driving around early in the morning and i'm looking at all the productive people <laughs> you know, cuz all the productive people get up really early and i'm like going wow this is and there's something beautiful about the morning, right? Like, hey, day is starting, sun is coming up, and some of you can really appreciate that. Good for you. Good for you. It's not like I don't understand it. But that's where we see this angel coming from from the east, descending from the east. So let's not let's not lose the beauty of that imagery. Now, whether, I don't want to get into too much detail about the identity of this angel. But at very least, the angel is an agent of Christ. The, the, the angel is an agent of redemption. The, the angel is kind of doing this while, for the bride of Christ while something else takes place. But let's recognize the beauty of this, this, this beginning of redemption. We read in Luke 178, through the tender mercy of our God, With which the day spring, if you have an ESV, it'll actually say the sunrise, referring to Christ from high, from on high, has visited us. It's like this idea that we were in darkness and the light has shined upon us. It's like day has begun when our eyes are open to see the glory of Christ. We see also in Malachi in the Old Testament anticipating this, but to you, who fear my name, the Son S-U-N, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So we we get this picture kind of of going before the judgment comes upon Jerusalem, there's going to be a visitation, there's going to be a coming of Christ where he's going to do something. What's he going to do? When you read your Bibles, you see emblems, you see implements, you see sacraments, all designed to teach us of deliverance. We see it over and over again. We see with Noah, right, that the ark became a symbol of deliverance. Uh, we, we see it, you know, with, with circumcision. We see it with the, the blood upon the doorposts of the households during the Passover, right? You've you've got this sacrament where the angel of death that was going to come and exact judgment would do what? Pass over that house. Now, I happen to be a person who believes that there actually was really a Passover. I happen to believe, and I hope you do too, that in Egypt, these things actually historically took place. It, they, they weren't written just as kind of like a literary device or a metaphor or some type of myth for us to understand something. They ha- that happened, but at the same time, it teaches us of something deeper, right? The blood on the doorpost because everybody in that household eventually died, right? They didn't die that night, but they eventually died. So the blood over the doorpost even though it had an immediate application in terms of nobody's going to die tonight, not on my watch. There was an eternal application of deliverance from death that we see when we recognize that it was not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of Christ that delivers us us eternally. But it is not one to the exclusion of the other, which I'm afraid oftentimes people do. They're like, well, I'm going to believe in the blood of Christ, but I'm not going to believe that there was a literal flood or that there was a literal Passover or a literal splitting of the Red Sea and on and on and on. I'll tell you, if you lose that which is teaching of the ultimate truth, you're going to eventually lose the ultimate truth as well. We see here that this angel is doing something. And I, don't, we won't, I was tempted to get into this. We'll get into it another time. He's doing something, right? He has got this seal and where is he sealing the people of God? On their foreheads. Boy, there's going to be a lot about that later. And if you, and if you thought it was confusing now, wait till we get that because it's way simpler. And yet you talk about remedial learning. Let me just tell you right up front head, forehead and hand. And we'll, we can, we'll do the study on that in detail. Forehead is the way you think, and your hand is the way you behave. That's. All the way into the Old Testament. And so it's the idea, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, we tend to put it in our head. It could be our heart or head. It's the idea that God is marking off those who acknowledge him as Savior and as Lord. In In our minds, in our foreheads, he's my Savior, and I'm following him by the efforts of my hand, my right hand, especially indicating what I do, my behavior. Is there, is there anywhere, now we're in this wild place, right? Where you've got these four angels, you've got the fifth angel. He's going to mark everybody on their foreheads because the fall of Jerusalem is about to happen. Is there anywhere in the Old Testament that will help us understand this? Remember I was saying, you're not going to understand Revelation unless you do some homework in the Old Testament. Is there anywhere that can help us? Is there some parallel in the Old Testament to what we're reading here? You must recognize by the fact that I'm asking the question that the answer must be yes. All right, in Ezekiel chapter 9, which is, you know, written approximately 600 years before the birth of Christ, Israel is going to be sieged very similar to what we're reading here. There's going to be the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And what we see, and we don't have time to get into it now, but you you can read it on your own, is that there is another angel with an ink horn who's going to go around and mark those people who belong to God on their foreheads that when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, that the people of God are left untouched. There it is right there. You've got the exact parallel. The same language, the same nation being judged. It seems to make all the sense in the world to go, what God did in 586 B.C. through the Babylonians, he's about to do again through the Roman armies. Well, I want to take just one second and talk about the people who were in Israel at the time of that event in 586. A little bit about, we'll go back even a little further, but I just, I want to say this because I kind of feel like a lot of us feel the way these people felt. Because the way those people in Ezekiel chapter 9 are described in terms of the faithful Ezekiel 9:4 you can put it up there they are identified as those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it there are many of us who feel grief with what's going on in the church and what's going on in the nation which i think is an extension of the influence of the church and the current downward trajectory. And we see that here, right? They are sighing. They are lamenting. They're looking around going, what are we doing? And that is the way they're identified as the faithful. We see a similar disposition going back even way further with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. You wonder, how did Lot feel about his environment? Well, Peter actually shares it with us in the New Testament, saying that Lot, quote, was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And he's there and he's watching this and he is grieved by his environment. And there would be a judgment. Well, let's put it, let's bring it even further. Jesus, he's looking over Jerusalem, right? You have this image that Jesus, there you have this impending judgment that's about to fall on Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do? He weeps over Jerusalem. It's grieving him that the covenant people of God had departed from the path of righteousness. Righteousness. And that, and we're told that in light of the judgment that was about to fall upon them. So we see it with what? Right? We see it in Ezekiel chapter 9. We see it here. And we see it elsewhere. Well, going back to then an understanding of this passage, what will happen to the bride of Christ? All this bad stuff's about to happen. What about those seven churches? Jesus is telling them, you know, you've got to stay faithful, stay the course, don't, go, don't follow, you know, those people who are trying to get you into their life and worldviews and their systems of ethics and on and on and on. Will they be judged along with the detractors? So let me ask you this question. In all of his talk, in all of Jesus' talk of tribulation that we read of in Matthew 24, in Luke 24, uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21, Does Jesus give any advice to those who are His in terms of this impending judgment? Does He say anything? Yes, He does. In all three Gospels, Matthew 24, 16, Mark 13, 14, and Luke 20, 21, we see the warning from Christ with these words, then let those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Remember I said a minute ago, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you need to flee. You need to get out of Jerusalem. Now let me tell you something. I, you know, Here's something, and you can challenge me on this during Q&A if you'd like. It seems obvious to me that if this is a prophecy about the second coming, and the judgment of the entire world. How am I going to flee to the mountains of Judea if I live in Torrance? <laughs> and he's kind of going, oh, you, you're you in Judea. Well, yeah, what about people who live in Redondo? Where are they supposed to go? So you, you see here, at very least, I mean, there's a way to make that work. Don't get me wrong. It's not like people who hold these positions aren't smart. But it doesn't seem very natural. It seems like Jesus is going, this is going to happen here. And you people who are here who are listening to me talk, you need to know it's coming and you need to get out. Well, did that happen? Well, let me read a couple of historical references. These, these are extra biblical. All right, so it's not in the Bible, but it's says history. Eusebius, the fourth century historian, Wrote this, talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He wrote, the whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation. I wonder who gave that. Given to men of approved piety there before the war. And by the war, they're talking about the war between Rome and, and uh, Israel, Jerusalem. Removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called So according to Eusebius, they did. They're like, we need to get out of here. Now, Jay Marcellus kick, I think, remarkably points this out in his book. Um, Well, Chilton quotes him, but Kick wrote a book on eschatology, on postmillennialism. Kick wrote this, it has been estimated that over a million Jews lost their lives in that terrible siege but not one of them was a Christian. So Jesus preached a sermon. In that sermon, he said, when you see this happen, get out. And people who believed him got out. Now, of course, those are extra-biblical, historical accounts of these events. And you know as well as I do that they don't, they're not canon, right? They're not the Word of God. But what is not extra-biblical is the warning of Christ to flee Judea. That's not extra-biblical. That's in the text. And what's also in the text is this angel of deliverance holding back the judgment of God while those who belong to God are sealed. And as we learn in Ezekiel, the ones who are sealed are the ones who escape that historical judgment. Now again, and again and again, these prophecies force us to militate against the idea that God has destined all of, the, all of history to move in a downward trajectory. I talked about that a few weeks ago. We, we've, we, as the church, have been convinced that it is the will of God for things to get worse. Because we take all of these verses and we put them at the end of history... We universalize them, rather than the natural reading of the text, and that is, it's just the opposite. It is God removing from the equation those who would snuff out the church, that the kingdom of God might grow, and those who take rank against the Lord's anointed would find themselves in the derision of God. There is one kingdom that will endure to the end, it's the kingdom of Christ. He's, it's the last man standing. Now, it's not a kingdom that is advanced by rifles and bombs. It's, it's advanced by the gospel. It's advanced by the blood of Christ. But it does advance. And I think we need to, as a people, repent of this idea that the blood of Christ is insufficient to save the world. he seals them now a seal is a sign of ownership it's a mark of ownership so we have this seal i don't think it's a literal seal i don't think there was ink or a tattoo or a stamp or anything along those lines if you're in christ you have a seal right the seal of the spirit that you belong to christ that you're here the sacraments right they're signs and seals that we belong to him And let me just finish with this. Even though the protection and the preservation in the context of chapter 7 involved protection from the Roman armies, remember, this is the historical event, Rome coming in, let us not think that it ends there, and let us not think that it's even primarily there in terms of and I pray every one of us is sealed. But every single person who was rescued in the Siege of Jerusalem eventually died. And and if and if that seal only meant I'm rescued from this one event, this historical event, then you've really missed the point. Everybody that Jesus ever raised from the dead died again. Every person he ever healed eventually died. See, the big big deal here that really affects us, number one, we recognize what I said a minute ago, that we should not view history as kind of going to hell in a handbasket. I think that is a false way to view what God is doing throughout history. But over and above that, we recognize that if God, in fact, has sealed us, well, it makes me think of when Jesus was in this crowded house, right? And, uh, and there's a paralytic that can't get to him. You know the story, right? And so they break the roof open and they lower him down and Jesus sees this taking place and the room is full of Pharisees. And Je- what does Jesus say in that? He goes, you know what? Your, your sins are washed away. Your sins are forgiven. And they get all mad at him, right? Right? Who is he who forgives sins? And, you know, It's really interesting because Jesus, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, asks them a question. Which is it easier to do? To, to forgive sins or to heal this guy? Which, which is easier? I, I'm going to argue it's easier to heal him because in order for your sins to be forgiven, Jesus would have to suffer the wrath of God. And then he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. And then he turned and he looked at the man, pick up your pallet and walk. See, the big event there wasn't that some paralytic was able to walk. The big event there, the takeaway from that event is that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And that is what we learn here as well. What we're going to see when we get to the end of this chapter, because well, next week, we'll, I'll tell you definitively who those 144,000 are. <laughs> and then we're going to get to this innumerable host, right? This innumerable number, if that's a redundant. And we get this picture at the very end of the chapter that kind of moves way beyond these historical events. Because what we're going to see at the end of the chapter is this glorious proclamation that extends throughout the course of history for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Passages that I've read hundreds of times in memorial services. And that is that it is this Christ, it is this God who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is the eternal deliverance that our focus must ever be upon. In order for us to appreciate what the revelation is really all about, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would grant us an understanding. I do pray, Father, for myself as a as a pastor, as a, a preacher, a teacher, that I would make these things clear. I pray for all of who are hearing that they would be good students and grasp where all these things are to be placed in our heart, in our mind, in our understanding of what you do. But above all these things, we do pray that we would appreciate what is accomplished by the blood of the Lamb, the payment made on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.